From Moby.co, this is The Flagship Pod, a weekly podcast going into the market, the economy, and the various economic forces shaping the world around you. As always, I'm your host, Peter Starr, bringing you this time a market in deep red as the CPI print comes out a little spicier than expected. We've got a lot of really interesting fallout from that to get through as the market continues to sell off here on a Friday. Uh, I think, you know, bear market's back, folks. We're not quite in full-on bear territory, but we're getting pretty close. As always, here to discuss that with me is our CEO, co-founder, and chief analyst, Justin Justin Kramer. Justin, dude, what's good? How are you surviving the, the deep red we're playing with right now on the DGI? <laughs> yeah, just more fun, you know, day-to-day volatility, week-to-week, month-to-month, whatever you want to measure the the actual period over. Um, it's, it's to be expected. Uh, unfortunately, given the inflation numbers that come out today, we, we sent a blurb about this out earlier this week talking about that if inflation was up a lot, the market would sell off. And, you know, if inflation was down, we'd see the opposite effect. So we'll dive into the details of what to expect going forward. Um, And we tweeted actually about very briefly, just like our kind of thoughts on energy prices, which we can dive into more today regarding our new number one pick. Um, But long story short, like, I think a lot of people are underestimating the like kind of downstream effects from a lot of the bans of Russian oil imports and some other things. So yeah, like I said, we'll, we'll dive into it. Um, it's definitely scary out there, but like everything, anyone who's been invested in the market for a while, and Peter, you say this all the time, it's about how much time is in the market rather than just picking the, the right stocks over the long run. Things tend to go up. Obviously, we're here to help you find the right investments, but conviction, long-term holding helps mitigate a lot of these shorter-term risks. Exactly. And it's one of those things, too, where there's just so much to unpack here as well. So hopefully we don't get too deep in the weeds of macro and all that. But we're seeing these two competing forces of rising inflation and diminishing consumer sentiment that's going to result in a lot of pain for retail in the short term, probably, as well as, you know, one thing we're really hoping to see was the CPI come out a little bit cooler than it did, because that would kind of indicate that inflation was peaking pre-summer, because the main drivers for inflation right now are obviously energy costs. Like, energy is just out of, out of control simply because of, like you're saying, a lot of the complex fallout from banning Russian oil, trying to sanction Russia, trying to stop this ludicrous invasion happening over there. So a lot of you know complicated fallout from that, especially now that we are gearing up for the summer travel season, which is when you see energy prices inflate a little bit just kind of naturally the the u.s likes to you know have air conditioning and all of that stuff as well as you know drive around both of things cost energy and those energy costs come in the form of oil and natural gas so you're going to see those prices pop even more push inflation up even more um so it's one of those things where we're going to be seeing the heat until you know the summer but hopefully we can see some positive directions obviously the fed is um scrambling right now to figure out you know are they going to get more aggressive about um bond uh, um quantitative tightening as well as uh, their interest rate rising we'll see so a lot of things to get into let's go ahead and just keep jumping right into it so justin just like let's 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 just talk about that uh if you look at the cpi print is it mainly energy doing the driving here or are we seeing any other expenses kind of like in that cpi breakdown that are kind of breakout forces as we think about the inflationary pressure on the market right now so energy is like an interesting like kind of root cause, if you will. So like the ener- price of energy dries up the price of everything. It's similar to how if anyone's in real estate, the price of real estate dries up things. So like if you live in New York or San Francisco or some of these expensive cities, because real estate costs so much, then the people who then buy the stores need to charge more for their goods in order to make money. And there's just a lot of downstream effects of like the actual infrastructure costing lots. So like it's the same thing with energy. And so right now, and this is something honestly no one is talking about, 
um, right now, like oil is not oil. And so what I mean by that is getting oil from one place versus getting oil from another place. It's not like homogeneous where you can just replace it. It's not like you're getting, you know, H2O and it's the same thing as H2O somewhere else. Like oil is different. So the oil that you drill in Russia is very different than the oil that's drilled in the United States. Um, and so right now with the U.S. and Europe, like doing a lot of banning of Russia, Russian oil importation and other like constraints on Russia, there's a lot, there's like two like kind of major effects going on right now. And I'll start with energy. I'll move towards like food prices and that should like hopefully answer the kind of overwhelming issue regarding just like the inflation we're seeing here and how the Fed just, I don't think there's, they can do enough at this point. I think it's a little too late. But effectively, I'll give summaries of both. So the first one is the oil. Like I said, there's different types of of oil. There's heavy oil, there's light oil, there's things in between. And just like the way it works is that some are better for extracting fuel for diesel, others for gasoline and jet fuel and all across the such. Um, so right now, basically, you have to get that oil, refine it, and then you ultimately are able to then push it past the different parts of the supply chain. So right now for the companies or oil companies that have a refinery and they're set up on heavy oil, they usually source all that oil from Russia, Canada, or Venezuela. Those are the three main places you get it. But if these refineries are unable now to start getting Russian oil and want to source it from these other Canada like countries, they run into kind of these unique challenges. So first, if they want to do it themselves, like Texas, which is the primary like producer of oil in the United States, is predominantly light oil. And those refineries are not set up to run on light oil. They're set up to run up on heavy oil. So you just can't replace Russia's oil with Texas's oil. Like it doesn't work like that, which I don't think most people realize. And so if you did that, though, the company ultimately, if they wanted to replace oils, would have to build an entirely brand new refinery. So you basically have one option, two options. You either build this refinery or you try and find a new source of oil. So let's say you want to find a new source of oil for Russia. It's not really a good option because the other options, like we said, are Canada and Venezuela. Canada, the Keystone pipeline got shut down. So really getting oil from them at scale isn't much of a reality. And doing it from Venezuela, I mean, there's a ton of geopolitical issues that I don't even think we need to dive into. Um, past that, we have the Delaware Basin in the US, which we can source. But again, like it's not fully sustainable in the long run. So ultimately, that leaves a lot of companies that need to rebuild their refineries for light oil specifically. But they have to then go get the machines. They have to set up new processes. It takes time and it's expensive. And on top of that, because inflation is so high, buying all the equipment that they'll need since it's a, such a capital intensive process is ultimately going to then make prices even more expensive on energy. So this Russian oil thing isn't necessarily just a supply constraint that pushes energy prices up. It gets multiplied when all of the refineries that then push it downstream have to completely rechange the way they operate. So you have this supply crunch on top of now what is ultimately an entirely new infrastructure crunch. So that's just one side of the equation. And now if energy prices go up, transporting food from one area of the country to another or for other countries costs more money. If you want to have like shipping containers send food, goods from other parts of the world to the U.S. and vice versa, like now energy prices go up. So it makes those food prices go up because the transportation costs for the suppliers go up. And then, I mean, keep moving down the value chain. But by the time it gets to consumers, it just keeps getting more and more expensive. And that's why we see inflation at sky high numbers. On top of that, when you start looking at other commodity prices like food, 
Russia is also one of the biggest exporters, not only of wheat, but which most people don't re realize is fertilizer. And we're about to move into like fertilizer season here in the U.S. And, and not Russia just any kind of fertilizer, the most important kind. Russia is one of the top exporters of phosphorus, which is an extraordinarily key ingredient in the whole fertilizer stack. Sorry to get all chemist on you, bro. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, you're the you're the science guy for me. So feel free to jump in and interrupt whenever you want. But and I know I'm talking for a while, but this is a pretty like important point. Um, but effectively that then uh, like fertilizer that we can ne can't necessarily import anymore is also going to start going up significantly in price and farmers and people who are in the food industry, which isn't like your average day-to-day -day person are starting to feel it. And because now fertilizer costs more to get, it costs more money also to get it here, then there's going to be more of a supply crunch, more of an infrastructure and that crunch and that leads to more inflation. So we haven't felt it necessarily there yet, but I think that's where we're going next. Again, these are like, quote unquote, more boring topics, so you don't hear people talking about it. But this is ultimately what's kind of kind of lead us to that next point of where I think inflation continues to get worse necessarily than get better. And when you look at Russia specifically, this may be really hard to believe, but they're actually running their country just purely from a monetary standpoint, nothing political, social. They're running their country pretty efficiently. They don't really need to import anything if they didn't want to. So all these like bans we're putting on Russia, yeah, it hurts them, but they actually run their budget at a surplus or they have. If you've been paying attention to the debt crisis that America in, I think it's over $30 trillion in debt. Like there's a real debt issue with rising interest rates that just becomes so much more worse as we're like borrowing from so many places. But Russia like is fully self-sufficient. If they turned off all of their imports, they'd actually still be able to survive. The reason they're able to do that so well is because they actually have an insanely massive stockpile of gold. I think it's like billions, like hundreds of billions of dollars that they can arbitrage with other people and trade for the goods they need with countries that are willing to do it. The only real import is things they want, not necessarily things they need. They import entertainment, they import foreign goods, but if they really, you know, we enter into a period of war or something, they need to shut down their borders. They're like one of the only developed countries that is actually completely self-sustaining to a certain extent. So this is getting a little off topic, but the reason we're getting there is ultimately this fight with Russia is gonna have a lot more implications than I think most people realize. And inflation ultimately is going to run a lot longer than people realize. Uh, been talking for like 10, 15 minutes. So I'll pause there. But it's, uh, it's a good explanation I think you'll get here that you're not going to get anywhere else. Absolutely. And I just want to reiterate a couple of points real fast, not to talk for 15 minutes or anything, but I want you to keep in mind, audience, that our energy crisis is not a crisis of supply. It's a, it's a crisis of refining capacity. And simply because, you know, you have to be very specifically designed for certain kinds of oil. Like we can just drill the bejesus out of the Permian Basin and all of that oil would have to go to refineries in the southeast, which are pretty well full up because they're already getting most of their oil from Texas, right? Like, I want you to think about the intro to the Sopranos. That's our problem right now. Those refineries on the east coast are primarily for that heavy oil. And again, there's a lot of there's a lot of things you could do. Um, the, the Keystone Pipeline only really affect only affects like one percent of that, but like every percent counts at this point, right? So just to contextualize that a little bit for you, um, I mean, I mean personally, I'm of the view that like if everyone's going to call Joe Biden a socialist anyway, let's you know to heck said to heck with it. Be legends 
then just legitimize this, the Venezuelan government and import from there. That's literally never going to happen, so I can say that to be a troll, but, you know, it's one of those things. Um, and then the other thing, too, is when you think about, you know, that kind of comparison, remember, this is kind of when you hear people talking about American empire and sort of that socioeconomic issue. This is the cost of it. The United States is the sort of like end consumer for the entire world market. The world depends on us to buy everything, essentially. And so that's why you can we can hammer Russia with all these sanctions and they can kind of keep going because, you know, people don't really depend on Russian consumers. Um, first of all, there's not a lot of them. It's, you know, a much smaller country than America. And at the same and in the same breath, um, like, that's the way we've kind of set things up. It's just kind of a consequence of the Cold War. That's how, you know, in the 70s and 80s, we figured we could, you know, buy, like, literally spend our way into winning the Cold War. So a lot of complex fallout from, like, really, really big historical issues that are just hitting us right now. So it's not just one, oh, the president's not... You, it, the president hit the high gas prices button again. How dare they? It's one of those things where you're you're missing a lot even trying to talk about it. Justin and I can literally have an eight-hour-long podcast and not even scratch one percent of the surface here. And so what you have, what you what, what we are seeing here is because of this diminished refining capacity, it's going to cascade hard. And so Justin, as we think about that, as we look into you know various ways to play that, like it's one of those things where it's really feeling 1975y. I've said that a lot, but it's one of those things where it's a it's a overheated downturn getting slammed with inflation as well so it's like where do i even put my money because inflation and a market downturn are kind of competing investing forces because you, you just say um buy the dip in a downturn but inflation causes other things to downturn more severely than others so it's a really 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 tough knot to unravel here and so as you're thinking about that justin how are you looking at this overall downturn like it, it, the cpi basically ended a nice little two-week bear market rally we had and we are fully we're not in bear territory yet the s&p is still at 39 and it will only be officially a bear market when that hits 38 but as you look at that and as we look at the potentiality of next month them announcing it's actually a recession once we see two negative quarters of GDP growth, how do you think about, you know, our sort of philosophy as finding a way to find at least decently strong investments during a period of what can only be described as just not pandemonium, but an easy place to get confused in? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. And you like allude to the 1970 like 70s stuff. And like, I think that's a good analogy. But it's also like we're in a period where I don't think anything's happened like this in the last few hundred years. I saw a reference the other day, which obviously, unless you're a historian, you're not going to have context for, but basically, and I'll be brief with this, in the 17th century, uh, in England, King James there spent like an insane amount of money on ships, travel, exploration, which is like considered super high tech for the time. Like going from America or Europe to America was like us going to like Mars or, or the moon. And so they were a really high tech society and ultimately spend a ton of ton of money um, to the degree that they couldn't sustain themselves it ended up being a huge problem for them. And I don't go and need to go into the history lesson, but ultimately kind of uh, led to a massive pullback uh, for them and then so on and so forth. That's a f effectively kind of where we are now, which sounds hilarious. But just from a mathematical standpoint, like we can't afford to do what we're what we're doing right now. It just it can't be sustained. Um, there's probably not a good parallel, other parallel I can draw to, but that's probably the closest right now. But with us just printing and printing money, I mean, it was going to catch up to us eventually, but we've been doing it for so long that it just felt normal for most people. At this point, I actually think like this is when it's starting to come to terms with us. So, I mean, 
the outlook is like continuing to be sort of grim. Things can change pretty quickly. Um, if we change how we get our oil, how we supply it, if we do fix the supply chains, I mean, things, things can get fixed. It's just a lot of it revolves around like this whole notion of like a world being integrated together. So people need to play nicely together, which I mean, look at Russia and Ukraine, who's to, who's to ever say when that's going to come to uh, come to terms and things be okay. It's impossible to predict, but at least in the short term, what we can do is start looking for investments that both are sliding down now that we know will rebound in the future. When the market hits the bottom, it's impossible to say. No one on planet Earth can say when it's going to bottom out exactly. We can just use like the data we have and the information to ultimately make like the next kind of selections, um, but continue to dollar cost average down. So when it does rebound, we can ultimately get like kind of the stocks on the the upside. Outside of that, um, I think like we're talking about a lot of energy stocks looking at like that company TPL, which is our new number one pick. Um, they're in an interesting position as the largest landowner in all of Texas uh, in the Permian Basin, which is an extremely high uh, area that people drill for oil in the US um, as one of the largest landowners. And as they ultimately will need to drill, drill more and more oil here, they will have a lot of these oil rights and oil royalties that they'll get from companies drilling on their land. We look at ExxonMobil, we look at Chevron, we look at other companies. They're starting to ramp up production significantly in the areas where they own land. Um, on top of that, they have water rights, they have land rights. They, they're an interesting stock that also people aren't covering. It's one name, it's not necessarily like, let's go invest our entire portfolio there tomorrow. But in the short term, it's definitely a good area that I think should continue to do well outside of like within the energy sector. And then past that, like continue allocating towards safer names that will pay dividends are strong fundamentally. We're looking for value names now that are growing responsibly rather than just growth at all costs. So, I mean, it's a long winded way of saying like the outlook is going to continue to be grim for some time, but this is just part and natural of economic cycles. Exactly. Natural, but not one of those things where like we need one. And I think that's a very important distinction. As you look to this audience, you hear a lot of people saying, well, we need a recession. Like no one ever needs a recession. Every recession is due to some kind of policy failure. But the interesting thing is watching these market cycles, you see each individual downturn take less and less time as we refine this century long experiment in neoliberal capitalism. So just just keep that in mind, too. Don't don't believe the hype where people say, yeah, we need this recession. No, 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 no. This was this was a this is a failure of policy. The Fed should have maybe jumped on this a lot sooner than they did. But the coronavirus was kind of an historically weird monkey wrench to throw in the works. So it's one of those things where it's a little bit hard to determine what the exact right move was. Hindsight is twenty twenty and all that. The goal is figuring out ways where we can like pull out of this downturn. But looking at that, it's one of those things where you have to be careful about buying the dip too and finding individual trends. That's why we kind of shifted a lot of our research into pharmaceuticals and healthcare stocks, as that's having its own localized recovery outside. Of of the broader market because they were getting hammered by COVID harder than most other plays. Obviously, energy is going to be a big deal right now, too. One thing I'm also doing is I'm adding to my positions in U.S. Series I bonds. Like, I'm going full grandpa mode on this just to hedge my bets. Series I bonds are a variable interest rate bond that you can buy directly from the government online, ustreasurydirect.gov, I think it's called. Type in Series I bonds. That's currently returning a semi-annualized rate of 9.62%, which, I mean, you're beating inflation by a percentage point. May as well play the game, right? The only caveat is you're only allowed about $10,000 a year worth of investments. You can buy them as gift for your like, you know, family and friends and children and all that too. So you can kind of like 
get around that uh, cap, so to speak. But in the same breath, it's also one of those things you have to watch closely as the rate changes every six months or so. So it's only 9.62% until October, which maybe it'll go up since inflation went up too. We'll have to see if inflation goes down, those rates will go down. So they're not like one of those things where, uh, you know, it, like long term, if you think inflation get under control really quickly, maybe it's not the best investment since you have to let it at least sit for a year, right? So you have to look at all of these things too, right? And the main thing you have to do is maybe not look at to buying the dip just yet. Like we're wa I'm waiting on a conservative measure of letting the, the NASDAQ and the S&P reclaim their 200-day moving average, both of which are, uh, the NASDAQ's down about 17% from its 200-day. Uh, the S&P this morning was only down 6%, but Lord knows where it is now. I haven't done the math yet. Uh, I can't do math on the fly. You can't make me do it. I won't. I won't. Um, so just keeping that in mind as well, when you're looking at this, you're looking for those more conservative plays right now because you want to at least maintain some levels of short-term returns during this time, and you don't want to waste too much of your dry powder before the air quotes actual bottom. Again, you're not trying to time the market. You're trying to maintain time in the market. So keep your slices small. Try to DCA your way into this as much as possible, dollar cost average. And and it's one of those things where the only thing that can cause you to fail this moment is being a forced seller. So that means like you're, you're forced to sell your stocks before you're ready. You're forced to give up a position before you're ready. So always make sure, especially now more than ever, that you're budgeting aggressively. You're expanding your emergency fund to maybe be more in the six month to eight month range if possible. And you're keeping, you know, a long-term view on your investments because trying to go leveraged right now, trying to YOLO your life savings, hoping this downturn ends quickly, probably not the best move. So um, it's one of those things where there's a lot, so much going on too. Like I just, you know, mentioned Wall Street bets for the fourth time. We didn't even talk about the SEC looking into potentially killing payment for order flow, which is absolutely gigantic news for retail investors. Like if we can't, if we, if what happens when commissionless trading goes away, like there's a lot, a lot, a lot in this market right now. And all we had to do was cover just like the one tiny, like massive emergency, which is the CPI print. And so that really, like that was 20 minutes on one quarter of what we wanted to talk about there, Justin. So my bad, dude. <laughs> um, uh, as we get into this too. Yeah, and I mean, it's hard. There's a lot going on right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so it's just one of those things where we just kind of have to focus down on all of these like little issues too. So let's kind of, let me round this out, getting to a bunch of audience questions. Justin, obviously everyone is super hyped up about our offshore portfolio. Our quantitative team just updated that strategy. Can you kind of take us through, you know, again, our quantitative side and our uh, offshore strategy and how we're thinking about it? Because it's one area that's showing interesting returns during a period where returns are kind of goofy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, the offshore strategy, like essentially in a nutshell, is targeting high quality and high growth names in foreign countries. Uh, so typically you can think of them as like emerging markets. Um, specifically like these portfolios are designed to find under these undervalued companies, invest in them, and then they update once a month, basically on the associated metrics. Uh, we use quantitative models using AI, which is a fancy way for just saying we build tech, apply a set of rules, and then let the computers and software do the rest. But effectively the way you can think about them is you see them, you mirror them, you trade them elsewhere, and then you update them. It can be a little frustrating to trade all these stocks as soon as we update them, but that's why we're building the ability to do trading on the platform soon, which we're really excited about. That's gonna be a ways away before we release it, but it should make executing this much easier. Um, but outside of that, like the way we're thinking about this emerging one and the reason it's doing so well is right now everything's down. Um, it's, it's hard to be up. So what we're looking for in terms of outperformance isn't always positive. It's just beating the index because in the long run, the index always goes up. So if you can beat the index in the short term, then in the long run, you'll be gaining like more wealth. So when we look at their emerging markets index, 
their market index for the emerging markets relative to the domestic markets is actually really similar, which shouldn't be surprising. But effectively, for the same level of risk as the emerging markets, if if not a little bit less, we are actually outperforming on the upside. Uh, the markets are down four and a half percent over the last month, uh, and this strategy is up um, pretty significantly as well. It's up five uh, percent in the last month, and we always preach long term investing, so we won't say how amazing this is because it's just one month, but it just like is more indicative of the fact that these strategies are designed to not only limit your downside, but then give you upside as well. And it's a, a really good way to to park assets if you're not trying to you know pick single stocks. These are portfolio strategies that you can allocate at your portfolio level and gives you a nice blend of the benchmark while also like, again, outperforming and taking less risk. So the one with the, um, the emerging markets in particular, because we have a handful of them for our premium members, uh, this one in particular did did really well. We actually did a lot of rebalancing in the last month, and there's a lot of details about it on the site. Um, but effectively, our kind of thesis for the last year or two has really proved to do well, which is finding high-quality, high-growth names and looking if they're undervalued and investing in them. Um, it's not the sexiest strategy in the world, but like boring is what is doing well right now. And I will add one little thing there, audience, one uh, low quality, bitter, childish, immature thing. Um, I just want to point out that there's always going, we haven't really revealed this, but there's always going to be a tiny minor rivalry internally at Moby.co between the journalism team and the quant team, right? Journalism team uses, you know, uh, traditional like fundamental analysis, a little bit of statistics and like a lot of just like learning narratives, reading marketing company, all of that stuff to, you know, make their picks that you see on our YouTube channel, see in some cases in our um, written stuff, whereas the quantitative team is, you know, entirely quantitative using data models. I just want to point out that um, uh, they re the rebalance of this portfolio is heavier on Alibaba, which if you're trusting the journalism team here at Moby.co, you've been playing that game for months uh, longer than the quant team has been. So I just want to say journalism wins. Uh, that's all I got. Nah, it's fair. It's, uh, it's very fair. The, uh, what you expect uh, based off the qualitative and, and based off the analysis versus what the computers are telling you are often quite different. Yeah, it's one of those things where I'm just I'm excited that I beat the machines. Obviously, you know, Alibaba still has a lot of forces playing on it. I'm glad that they're doing well. I want them to be doing way better than they are. I'm still seeing a lot of like negative market sentiment towards them. But if you look at our, um, what am I trying to say here? If you look at the rest of the portfolio, it's rebalanced a lot, a lot around energy as well. And so it's a really exciting rebalance. Um, and I'm just excited that Alibaba is a big part of it as we move forward because they it's it's like buying Amazon in twenty in like twenty. 09 at this point right so totally. yeah yeah either either way though um obviously this market justin is pandemonium right now like you're going to hear a lot of short-term noise and not a lot of long-term signal during these periods and the main thing is just maintain that focus maintain your consistent investments but maintain them in a way that ensures that you do not become a forced seller that's the only true danger you're in at this time if you have to sell your positions that's the only thing that's going to damage your long-term health as an investor as a person anything this is the easiest game in the world to play as long as you give yourself the appropriate amount of time to play it so not too too much risk get aggressive about budgeting make sure that you are 
slowly expanding your nece- your necessities budget as inflation sort of creeps up on you and use your budget as a scientific instrument to determine where in your life inflation is popping up because you will see prices fluctuate wildly across sectors, across geographies. So food inflation here in California, it's not as bad as it is in other parts of the country since like all the food is grown here, right? So once I get back to the East Coast, I'll be way more concerned about food inflation. But right now, my main thing is energy inflation as gas prices here in California are truly diabolical. Like I'm, I'm I'm pushing 677 down here and i live next to the goddamn refinery dude like goodness um so either way yeah, justin we're, we're, we're pushing over time here i really appreciate you being here with me man during this really uh intense d- development sprint that we're currently doing um you're gonna be seeing a lot of really cool news out of us in the next two weeks or so audience as we put some final details and some cool stuff but justin as we sort of like roll through the finals here any final thoughts for you to make sure that you know our audience is maintaining sort of the right direction through this and maintaining the sort of like the light the right mindset anything else we want to keep in mind before we go ahead and put a bow on this thing no unfortunately there's a lot more we, we do want to cover uh the agenda today we probably only covered 50 percent of it um but I, I think for us right now and for who's ever listening it's most important just to keep calm uh, try and listen to a lot of the advice that we're putting out. Uh, we're we're working really hard behind the scenes, uh, and just know in the long run things will be okay. If you're a newer investor, I'm sure it's terrifying seeing things just go down every single day. But this is why we preach since our inception that you need to be thinking over a multi-year period. Exactly. The only thing I was pissed off about about a, being an early investor was not being, you know, putting more of my budget in. Like I legitimately put too much into savings when I was a fresh out of college worker in the middle of the 2008 crisis and that's the only real regret I have. That's not me saying, "Oh, I should I I think you should put an uncomfortable amount of money in." I'm saying have confidence, trust that the system always rebounds. It's one of those things where uh, on long timescales, we have a way of increasing productivity pretty much no matter what, even with goofy historical moments. So, uh, you know, journal a lot too. You know, your journals might be a lot more valuable because they'll be good historical documents, but make sure you sort of stick to the plan, which is your slow incremental investment month over month over month, and you'll power right through this. Either way, a lot more to discuss. Maybe one day we'll get to a point where we can finally afford the time to do two of these a week but for now we have gone massively over time on this so audience i really appreciate your time justin kramer chief founder uh, uh co-founder chief analyst here at moby.co i really appreciate your time as well i think you were about to hit me yeah, with a final course. point dude no i think uh i think that covered it i think if people have questions just feel free uh to message us in the discord channel for people who are majority of our listeners listening on a, a future podcast um definitely check out the the website definitely join the discord there's a, a lot more information to get there Exactly, man. And either way, audience, I really appreciate your time. And I'm going to go ahead and just uh, read us out here. So audience, just so you know, this podcast is produced, hosted and voiced by me, Peter Starr, our chief analyst and co-founder is the source of all of our intellectual advice here, like the actual intellectual source of our information. And that's Justin Kramer, co-founder and CEO here at Moby.co. If you have any questions for us, you can hit us up at hello at Moby.co. Make sure you join us over at Discord. You can find a link to that in the description of this podcast episode. Otherwise, audience, just make sure you stick to the plan. And as always, we'd like to leave you with peace love and incremental gains. Everyone be well. Thank you so much.